0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: We talked this morning about how, is that too resonant? Okay. We talked this morning about how, yeah, there's too much echo in there. Is that better? Is that better? Can you hear me in the back? Okay. A little higher. <clears throat> that question, of course, is a trick question. If you can't hear me in the back, then how are you gonna know? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> we talked this morning about how discernment is basically pragmatic and strategic. And this is pointed out in passage number two in the readings. This is actually part of a larger sutta where the Buddha says there are four courses of action. There is the course of action that is pleasant to do and will give good results. The course of action that is unpleasant to do and will give bad results. And those two are no-brainers. It's pleasant, it gives good results, you'll do it if it's unpleasant, gives bad results you're not going to do it the difficult ones are the ones that are mentioned in this passage the one that's pleasant to do but will give bad results and the one that's unpleasant to do but is going to give good results and that's where you need your discernment to talk yourself into doing what is going to give good results regardless of whether you like it and what's going to talk yourself out of doing things that will give bad results regardless of whether you like it and so this connects with passage number three which talks about the four ways that we go off course um, we go off course out of desire we go of course out out of aversion off course out of delusion and off course out of fear um, these are the explanations for why people act in a biased or prejudiced way one of those four things will lead them to act in, the, in unskillful ways Which means those are four qualities that we have to learn how to overcome because those are the things that are going to get us to do things that are not in our long-term interests and to not do things that are in our our long-term interests. So we have to look at those four. Um, Of the four, you have to realize that aversion is always bad, delusion is always bad. It's the fear and the desire you have to be more discerning about. There are some desires that are actually good. And there are some fears that are actually good. There's a fear of doing something unskillful. That's actually a good fear. The fear of causing harm to yourself, causing harm to others. That is something to be afraid of. This would be the fear of heedfulness and the fear of compunction. There is a fear underlying these things, that you don't want to do anything that's going to cause harm because it just multiplies the harm more than maturity. Already dealing with, you can't overcome this fear. You can't really trust your pr- primary fear. Of course, is the fear of death. And if you can't overcome this fear, you can't really trust yourself to act in your own best interests. There always be something and say, "Well, I'm afraid I'm going to die, so there I don't want to." I could, you know, break the precepts out of fear of death. I could do other unskillful things out of fear of death. And you have to learn how to overcome this. This is one of the areas where I learn, I think, learned the most from my first time with the John Fuang was one night he said, he said, are you, are you afraid of dying? In any place in the world, everybody would say, yes, of course. But I realized, okay, if I said yes, it was not part of the, the custom or the culture of that particular tradition. Um, so how do you overcome fear of death? This is about passage, the next passage is about. Basically, there are four things that cause us to be afraid of death. Attachment to sensual pleasures, attachment to the body. Fear of the consequences of the past things we've done that have been unskillful. And then not seeing the true dharma. In other words, you're afraid you're going to die that when you, once you die you're going to be deprived of the sensual pleasures you enjoy on the human realm. You're going to be taken away from the body to which you're attached. There is the fear that, okay, after you die maybe there really is such a thing as punishment after death and gosh, all those horrible things I did they're going to come and get me. And then there's ultimately the fear of not seeing the true dharma. The true dharma is basically realizing there is a deathless property that you can contact through, uh, through the practice. And if you haven't seen that, there's always fear death might be annihilation. There's, you know, the, you, the body dies and that's it. And so it's learning how to overcome these four fears that make us more reliable. So that when something comes up, and even though it, there could be the prospect of we could die by following the practice. Okay, I would rather stick with the practice and die rather than abandon the practice and try to survive survive that way. This is illustrated in that um, analogy that I told you earlier about the the bandits pinning you down and sawing off your limbs. And the Buddha says you still have to have goodwill for them, even in a situation like that, because if you have ill will for them, that ill will is going to then carry on into the next lifetime and get you fascinated on or fixated on those people fixated on revenge. And that could lead you to do all kinds of unskillful things. So the way to overcome these four things, these four kinds of fear, is a process where the Buddha says, basically has five steps, is learn how to f- develop dispassion for these things. And the five steps start out with one is, when you see something unskillful arising in the mind, you want to see it as it arises. In other words, what causes, What? what, what is It's not just a simple arising. When it arises, there's a cause that goes along with it. And you can apply this particular analysis if you want to, to any kind of addiction you have. Number one, of course, is internet addiction. (laughs) It's endemic up here. You walk into a... Yesterday, walking into an airport lounge, what do I see? Everybody on their screens, you know. I have a friend who has a friend who's psychic who's been for many years getting messages from you know, people who died and basically having to help them move on to the next, next level. And it's discovered in the past several years that the hardest thing for people to let go of after they've died is their devices. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so watch out. So suppose you have an internet, an internet addiction. Okay? You have to see the moment it says, you. I've got to check my email, even though you checked your email five minutes ago. what is it that is the compulsion to go back to get in there so see that arising don't wait until it's become a full blown full blown desire but what is the first spark in the mind I'd like to do this again see what's going along with it what sort of physical symptoms do you have what kind of mental systems do you have at that point that would induce you to say I've got to go with this even though part of me knows that I'm way too addicted to the internet then you want to see it passing away Because these impulses are not as constant as they pretend to be. In other words, part of your mind will say, if I don't give in to this now, it's just gonna get stronger and stronger and stronger until it turns into the thing and takes over. So I just gotta appease it now while it's still manageable. It's not really that way. The, The impulse will come, the impulse will go. And it's not like it builds up to kind of a crescendo. It comes and goes, comes and goes the part of the mind that wants you to go, that will make it seem more like a crescendo, but you have to see it does come and it goes, it stops. Even desires or anger that seem to be unending do have their point. Uh, Anger is one of the most difficult ones to see because once there's been a moment of anger arises in the mind, there are hormones that get into your system. And then even though the moment of anger will have passed, the hormones are still there, and you interpret that, oh, it's a sign I'm still angry. Pick it up again you've got to remind yourself, okay, the hormones are one thing, the physical symptoms are one thing, the actual anger is something else. Don't confuse the two. So it's good to know that. You look for the arising of the thought, you look for the passing away of the impulse. And then the third thing you look for is the allure. The allure. Why do you go for it? What is attractive about this? What do you think you're getting out of this? What are the excuses or what are the reasoning in the mind that says, you got to go, for, and something about you wants to go for this. Now, in some cases where you know that the impulse is unskillful, part of the mind will try to hide it from you. You don't like to admit to yourself that it really does, you know, you know those thoughts of revenge. There was a great New Yorker cartoon where two witches are over a big boiling cauldron and one of them is tasting the brew and she says, it's too sweet, you put in too much revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what is it about revenge that's sweet? You know? <laughs> what is about something you know is unskillful that, that you like about it, basically? we have got to look for that. And then you can compare it with the drawbacks. I mean, you may see the drawbacks, but if you don't see the appeal, you're not doing a fair comparison. And for seeing the drawbacks, this is where the Buddha's teachings on, say, the, the three characteristics come in. Is this something that's lasting? The, the reward that comes from this, is it lasting? If it's not lasting, it's going to be stressful. And if it's not lasting and stressful, is it worth identifying with? Now, notice the Buddha's not saying it's stressful, it's in, in constant stressful, he's not saying there is no self. The whole thing about the perception of not self is it's a value judgment. Is this really worth sticking with? And it's when you can compare the allure and can compare the drawbacks, and you begin to do this kind of analysis that you know, whatever appeal, whatever reward you get out of this is not lasting. But the drawbacks are going to be much more, much heavier. That's when you find the escape from it, i.e., you develop dispassion for it. Now, the question sometimes comes up: Was how do you know that this something is going to be for your long-term interest as opposed to just a short-term interest? And the Buddha doesn't have you invent the dharma wheel every time you have to make this decision. You know, this is why we have the five precepts. If there's an impulse to break the five precepts, you know there's something wrong. And that whatever would pull you away, you know, your, your, your fear of losing money, your fear of losing your friends, your fear of harming your health by sticking to a precept, you have to say, I can't go with that. that those re, those, my concern about my health, my concern about my friends, my concern about the wealth, that has to be seen as something to develop dispassion for. Similarly, when your mind is in concentration, everything that at that moment that would pull you out of the concentration, you've got to say, that is unskillful. I've got to learn how to apply these three perceptions. The Buddha never calls them three characteristics, by the way. The three perceptions that you apply as an analysis for developing dispassion. So in other words, while you're on the path, you don't apply these three perceptions to the path. You apply them to everything that would pull you off. And then as your discernment gets more and more refined and you get further and further along the path, you get to the point where, okay, it's the raft that you have to let go of and then you start applying those perceptions to the path itself. But up until that point, you regard your karma as your own. You regard your your treasure. You regard your virtue as your treasure. You regard your concentration as your treasure. Hold on to those things and you apply these perceptions to anything that will pull you away. If it's a case of a, you know, an obvious addiction, it's okay. You, again, you apply them to the source of the addiction and then whatever you can find that will leverage you away from the addiction, you're going to hold on to that for the time being. This is one of the reasons why this is good to develop a state of concentration that you can access when you need it. It gives you an alternative source of pleasure because a lot of the times the, Mind will say, I'm really hungry for something right now, I, you know, I'm desperate for pleasure. Or I worked hard all day, I need to give myself a little present. Well, A little present of something that's going to be unskillful in the long term, that's not a present. You say, well, if I can just breathe in a way that feels refreshing, breathe in a way that feels good, that takes a lot of the edge off that hunger for immediate gratification. So use that as your leverage. And then as you examine the detachment. Question in the back? Traveling mic, traveling mic. Thank
0: you. Um, I have a question about how you go from the first one to the second So the first one was to look at the impulse mm-hmm. Then the second you say is to see the impulse go away mm-hmm. um, I guess when I'm in, Under the compulsion of You know Using the internet, for example, um, I mean, I, it feels like I have to take your word for it that mm-hmm. if I do nothing, it's going to go away. Mm-hmm. Because that's not what my mind is thinking at that time. That's not what it's thinking
1: at that time. Your mind has already, ca- you know,
0: yeah, you. yeah. So is like I'm almost like in disbelief. Like I'm asking <laughs> you, is it true?
1: Okay, the thing is you, <laughs> have, you have to keep feeding that impulse for it to continue.
0: So, is it thinking about something else, or just breathing, or?
1: Well, just kind of—you can ask yourself: Okay, is there, you know, where where am I feeling tension in the body right now that's making me feel on edge that I've got to give into this? Can I breathe through that? And just the fact that you've asked that question has moved you out of the impulse, at least momentarily.
0: Oh, so using you're using this tactic that will naturally lead you to seeing it. It can lead you. That can lead you. you, you
1: There's a famous story in Thailand about this one woman who went to see Jokun Ubali who was a monk who was reputed to have a very sharp tongue. And so you you went in to see him at your own risk. And she had just lost her only child, her son, who was 20-some years old. And she was just desperate. She'd said, ever since he's died, I can't think of anything but how much I miss him and how sad I am about this. And he said, oh, you're just saying that to impress other people. She She was livid. And she she didn't even bow down, she just left. She went home, and after three hours, she realized she hadn't thought about her son for three hours. (laughs) (laughs) She was so angry at a (laughs) Chakunupale. So she went back and bowed down. (laughs) So that's replacing one defilement with another one. But... (laughs) But it does help you see that the things you think that are there in the mind, they're eating, eating, eating away, and seem to be relentless. They're not as relentless as you think. Part of your mind is actually feeding them. And when you can see that, that's when you realize, okay, if I don't feed this, they're going to go. And what feeds them, of course, is the the thought, okay, this is just going to get worse and worse and worse until I finally give in, so I might as well give in now. Or the other thought that says, "Well, you're going to give in anyhow, so well let's make it easy for both of us and you know <laughs> those kinds of things, you know because those, those are the thoughts that continue the, the impulse. So this is basically, okay,
2: apology. I have a question on that. Uh, watching the impulse come. And it go away, and then the allure part. Uh, that seems to be a little uh, tricky because it seems like uh, sometimes the mind has got all sorts of stories to tell you, like, uh, "Oh, it's a you need to look at it. Uh, it's your work or something mm-hmm. of that sort." And I mean, in cases where it is not my work or something, then I, it's easy to easy to tell myself that, no, there is, those other addictions I can just tell myself, no, no, there is no need to go there at all. But when it comes to uh, addiction to, you know, checking emails and things like that, it seems almost like the only way I'm able to discipline myself is like saying, okay, I'm going to have a set amount of time in the day that I will use for internet, mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm not going to do anything beyond that. It can work on maybe weekends or something, or holidays, but it doesn't seem to work at all on weekdays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Comments, suggestions.
1: Okay. Well, again, you've got this, maybe on the weekdays you say, oh, you know, at the weekends you look at the email twice a day. At work you look at it four times a day, max. times a day.
3: <laughs>
2: I wish my work were that simple.
1: <laughs> obviously, okay, this, this, this is a monk talking to you. <laughs> I don't have any competition for my job. Uh. <laughs> Thank you. But at least you know, you, you've got to figure out what is it reasonable about and when does it get unreasonable. And then if you catch yourself, well, I, catch your, I look at my email and then I look at Yahoo News and then I look at this and then I look at that and it gets further and further away from your work. The next time you feel the impulse, you say, okay, remember what happened last time? I looked at the news and then all of a sudden, you know, I was off, you know, you know, doing something else.
2: But it's never usually somehow, uh, somehow for some, for, fortunately maybe, but I'm not particularly attracted to the news mm-hmm. but it seems like I'm more attracted to uh, an email message that comes from a colleague or something and mm-hmm. I might have sent him something and I might, I'm expecting a rep- response or something mm-hmm. there's that impulse to go and keep checking keep checking mm-hmm.
1: um, it's like pushing the L button L yeah, you know.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. give me give me the give me the uh, mm-hmm. response mm-hmm. Uh, the button is not going to give me the response but right. it seems like there's that impulse uh, I don't know don't know what, what to say
1: well again if you found that you know, the last time I checked email it was five times before I actually got the message <laughs> 50 okay and okay I got to cut down and no message in the computer world is that time sensitive okay. yeah got to convince yourself you got to right? convince yourself of that and remind yourself, just because something is pressing doesn't mean it's important. That's the other thing you've got to remind yourself. So this, this is something where you've got to work out, okay, what, at what point does it get excessive? At what, what point is it counterproductive? Because that's what an addiction is, it's counterproductive. And the time you could have spent doing actual work instead of checking your email gets wasted. So the, provide yourself with other arguments on the other side. And as I that you've got to get that answer from that colleague right away. That's all I can offer. Thank you. But again, it's, it's this five-step five pattern. You can find yourself, I'm addicted to something that you know, really is interfering with what something is in my best interest. And then you, okay, what, how does it arise? How does it pass away? What is the allure? What's, what keeps pulling me there? and then third one, fourth one is single, what are the drawbacks of what I'm doing? Compare the two until you can, can get a sense of dispassion for it. And then the dispassion is, is the escape. Now dispassion does not mean aversion. It means kind of growing up. Where John Cha's explanation is, it's like sobering up. You know, you're intoxicated with you know, how fast these things are and how quick these things are, but it's an intoxication. And the part of, a more mature part of your mind will say, Look, I don't have to check 50 times before I get the message. So obviously, that's all the work I could be doing otherwise is getting wasted. And then you remind yourself the next time you feel the impulse to push the button or click the mouse. May I
2: ask you a follow up on this? Mm-hmm. Small. Uh, this is related to uh, addiction, to sensuality. Mm-hmm. So I've been reading passages from your book on uh, the comparison to sensuality that the Buddha gives, like uh, the comparison of a leper mm-hmm. and the comparisons to a dry grass, uh, fire Touchable. stick or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like they are very good ways for me to kind of, images for me to hold uh, when there is a kind of a thought of sensuality that arises to so, so mm-hmm. kind of uh, zap it or... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I can see that the, how the impulse goes away is related to how I'm kind of fabricating these mm-hmm. right. these uh, kind of images in my mind about sensuality so it goes away mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not able to uh, kind of see it, it as a dispassion I see it more like uh, in my mind I tell myself okay this is a bad this is something I just do not want to do I, mm-hmm. it's not good for me. It's more like a aversion sort of thing. I'm kind of building up, or what, how do you see it?
1: In the beginning, it will be aversion,
2: and it's good aversion.
1: It's a good aversion, and the, at, with time, you'll it'll it'll get more and more tempered. So it, you're just going to lose interest. I mean, like when I, when I realized I had to get you know stop eating sweet things.
3: Hmm.
1: At first, it was. Ah, and so I developed a strong aversion to the sweet things. Saying, you know, this is going to kill me if I keep on eating all these sweets. And so I, you know, I had to see the sugar industry as my enemy. <laughs> 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 and then after a while, it got so that you know, b- being away from sugar, the smell of sugar became repulsive. And I just, you know, then then I lost interest. And that's that's how it happens. I mean, there will be an aversion to begin with, because you really got to fight things in the beginning. Mm. And then, as you get more and more successful, and you develop a better repertoire, you don't need to keep on using the club. But don't be afraid to use the club in the beginning. All right. You know, they talk about being gentle, sitting, you know, having your anger sit down with you. Have a cup of tea. Being, you can't do that in the beginning. It's going to poison your tea. You know? Right. So you got to say, okay, you know, no. No compromises with the anger, and then after a while, then then you can back off after you've gotten away from it more. Okay. Okay, that you have to have positive to de- no, yes, I'll, I'll I'll repeat your question because you didn't have the mic. Um, do you have to have positive aversion to begin to develop this passion in the beginning? Yes. Again, it has to be aversion toward the res- the drawbacks. This is going to really. Do me harm. I don't want that. And you have to make it strong enough so that all those other voices that come up in the mind and say, "Oh yes, you really do. It's okay. It doesn't matter." You have to mm, no. And then after a while you begin to realize, "Okay, that's excessive. I don't need all that." But so you it's you have to artificially create the positive version and again. It really helps with the sugar industry. I mean, or, or the sugar. Or reading about the sugar industry helps with that. You know, there's somebody out there who's actually trying to hook me. And so I said, I'll show them. (laughs) It's like being a Western monk in Thailand. You know, on on the one hand, you hear about all these stories about how the Thais really are amazed with Western monks and everything. Well, it's kind of like the amazement you see with a dancing elephant. I mean, the fact that they can dance is amazing in and of itself. You don't expect them to dance well, you know. (laughs) And so people would come to see a John Fuller and say, I see these Westerners ordained. do you think they really understand the Dharma? You know? <laughs> and so my, my reaction was, I'll show them. You know?
3: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: so that's using, using an unskillful mental state to counteract a more unskillful mental state. You know? okay. So it's okay. Question over here? Yeah, can we have the mic?
3: I haven't really thought of this, but this just came up for me: is how do you do that for like judging a judger? How do you use this the
1: judging in your mind, or judging another person? Judging
0: someone who is judge judging, <laughs> okay. yeah, you judge them.
1: Okay, you have to have some compassion for them. Um, I mean, passing judgment on other people is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just learning how to use the right criteria. You know, if I imitated this person, would this be a good person to follow? You say, no. Now, do I have to hang around this person? Maybe yes. In which case, how do I train myself so that I don't get pulled into their way of thinking? One. And two, how I don't, I don't start getting judgmental about the person. You've got to have compassion.
3: Would it be the same for
0: like judging your own judging thoughts?
1: Okay, well ask your judging thoughts, what kind of criteria are you using? And are you actually giving the person that you're judging, are you giving them a fair chance? Because again, passing judgment on someone else as a potential person to hang out with, a potential person to associate with, a potential person to emulate, that's, that's val- a valid use of your faculty judgment. But as to, you know, get passing a final, you know, judgment on whether this person is, you know, a really, really good person or a really, really bad person, you say, I don't really know that much. But it's okay to say, Do I want to imitate this person? No. Yes. Whatever you come up with. Don't be afraid of passing judgment. There's a difference between being judgmental and being judicious. You can't stop. You know, you have to use your judicious powers, but the judgmental powers—those are the ones you have to recognize. Okay, I'm not giving this a fair chance. I'm not really looking at all the all the evidence before I pass my judgment. i have got to withhold judgment for the time being. Thank you. Okay. Question
4: here.
1: Here comes the mic. Thank
4: you. So it's about the the second passage. It's about the fool.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So the fool doesn't do something which is unpleasant to do but which leads to what is profitable when done. So he doesn't do it. And then my question is the non-doing of that course of action leads to what is unprofitable. Mm -hmm. How can inactivity lead to something?
1: Okay, But the fact that there's something you could have done that would have been profitable but you don't do it the results are going to be unprofitable.
4: Is that only... Is that given the fact that he's a fool? No, it's given the fact that he's not doing it. (laughs) But for an arahant, he can be totally static.
1: Yeah, because he doesn't have any work he has to do, or she doesn't have any work to do that they have to do anymore in terms of perfecting their mind.
4: Maybe you can help me understand. So the fool doesn't do what is profitable, and then... Is it because there's an opportunity cost that he's there's not? A, there's an
1: opportunity cost, yeah, that he's missing or she's missing.
4: Okay. All right.
1: This this is particularly for the issue of you know being on the path and learning. It's okay, that if you know if I actually develop powers of concentration, it would be good for me, but I'm not going to do it because gee, I'm mean, going to sitting all those hours and it's going to be painful, and so I just won't do it. And there's a lot you're missing out on as a result. Okay, I've got three or four pages on discernment which we've just got to skip because we're never going to get there. Okay. Any last questions on the use of discernment in everyday life? Remember, The discernment the Buddha is talking about here is pragmatic, it is strategic. Sometimes with strategy that means, as we mentioned earlier, you've got to learn how to use one unskillful mind state to undercut a more serious unskillful mind state. It's like being a cook. Remember, the Buddha uses the image of feeding as in parallel to clinging. We're actually fixing our food. This is when we say something is fabricated or something is conditioned. It's basically like fixing your food that then you're going to eat. And to develop this passion means basically not only seeing, I don't want to eat this anymore, but because I don't want to eat it anymore, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to cook this meal anymore. And that's how dispassion leads to cessation. Now remember the image that all, all experiences, all phenomena, come from desire. There's an intentional element in there, or else it wouldn't happen. And what motivates the intention is you know you, the anticipation that you're going to get some good out of this. I mean, the best Im- image I can think of is you've got some chickens, and you keep feeding the chickens because you want to eat the eggs. But our problem is is that we're pretty undiscerning about what comes out of chickens. And we eat everything that comes out of the chickens. <laughs> you know, scrambled chicken droppings. You know, <laughs> and so we got to One, we have to learn to be more discerning about this process of fabrication that we do in our minds. What can we do that's going to create a path rather than just, you know, willy-nilly fixing everything that comes out of our chickens. And so, on the one hand, we learn to distinguish: okay, what is what? What are the chicken droppings? What are the eggs? We feed the chickens for the eggs, but then we learn how to develop the mind. So of ultimately, we don't even have to eat the eat the eggs, which means that we can let the chickens go, and they're free to feed themselves. So this this is the basic image that the Buddha is operating on. So we're in the meantime, we're learning how to think strategically because sometimes. As we pointed out now, you have to use an unskillful mental state to overcome another unskillful one. And a classic example in John Lee's autobiography is talking about when he was a young monk and he and some of the other monks would have meditation contests. <laughs> you know, who can sit longer? Who can do walking meditation longer? Um, and of course it's silly, but it trains you to be a longer meditator. You know? And when you finally realize it's silly, by that, by that time you have developed some good habits otherwise. So sometimes you start out with something that's not quite 100% skillful, but it's leaning in the, leading you in the right direction. When I was a young monk, there was another Thai, Thai guy who ordained pretty much the same time I did. And we'd go up to the top of the hill and meditate. And I'd be sitting there, you know, in pain from the meditation and being you know chewed up by the mosquitoes or stabbed by the mosquitoes. And I was ready to give up. And I'd look over at him and he's very quiet. I said, for the good name of America, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let this. So, I, so I keep on sitting. I found out later that he was sitting there in pain, being you know, on pain of mosquitoes. He'd open his eyes, and there was a stupid American over there, and I said, he said, "Very good, this wasn't.
3: <laughs>
1: And so we kept each other going. You know. So there are times when you're used on something unskilful to develop something overcome something that's even more unskillful. But it's all part of learning how to think strategically. And this is what the actual practice teaches your discernment. And you might come to say, well, you shouldn't have any clinging, therefore I'm not going to cling to my concentration. That's wrong. I mean, I was actually reading in a book, someone saying that, you know, if you stay focused on one object, that's obviously clinging, so you just have to let go. You know? Which, you know, short-circuits the whole path. <coughs> any last questions on discernment before we go on?
2: Passage number four is talking about uh, uh, perplex- perplexion over not having touched the true Dhamma. Yes. So, this is sort of uh, one of the fears I have. So, what is the way to get over? The what? Well, what's the way to get over this fear?
1: Stream entry. <laughs> Something more. You, you thought the perfections were just you know, sort of talking down to lay people? No, this you've got to work on getting the stream. Okay. All right. <laughs> Why do you look shocked?
2: No, well, uh, it's a lofty goal.
1: <laughs> yes. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that's the only way you're going to totally overcome your fear of death. Otherwise, there's always that possibility that maybe the secular Buddhists are right, there is nothing after you die. And you have to have it, You have to be able to see for yourself. Oh, that's not true. There is a deathless element that you can contact. There's something that doesn't die. And then you realize, okay, it would be better to die than to, you know, break my precepts. It would be better to die than to uh, go away from the path. And that confirms this for you. Up until that point, there are always going to be doubts. So.
2: You use fear of death to motivate yourself, but we have to ultimately overcome this fear of right. death. Mm-hmm. And...
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm. and the fear that you're that you're using to motivate yourself then turns into heedfulness yeah. and compunction. Yeah, you know, I don't want to do anything that would that, that would be you know, more dangerous than death. And you've got to see it that way. And when you have that. That set of values, then, you know, that's that's when they, these become perfections. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that which that relates to the next section, which is on goodwill. Okay, and first, I want to give you a few general. notice we're not covering all the readings. You can read them on your own. <laughs> but I want to give you the main points before you, before we leave. Okay. The word here is metta, which I translate as goodwill rather than loving-kindness. Because love is a different word in Pali. It's bema, as in bema children. And bema, or love, is not something that you can make universal. And the Buddha points out how there is hatred that comes from love, there is love that comes from hatred. It's an interesting analysis, you know. You love X, so and so someone else treats X well, you're gonna love the other person. You love X, so and so mistreats X, you're gonna hate that person. You hate X, someone else treats X well, you're gonna hate that person. <laughs> so you hate X, someone else is bad to X, you're gonna love that person. It's all very arbitrary. It's not a universal something you can universalize whereas goodwill, as I said earlier this morning is the desire for beings to be happy and realizing that as, we, as we'll discuss goodwill under the, under the heading of discernment, what does discernment teach goodwill one of the lessons you learn is that people are going to be happy through their own actions so you're basically wishing, may this person be skillful and you can think of this as anybody People who are already skillful, you can wish this. Then may they continue being skillful. People who are unskillful, then may they change their ways. This is what goodwill means. Um, One of the lessons I got in goodwill was talking, John Furin was talking one time about how he had a snake move into his room. Sort of unexpected roommate. (laughs) And he knew the snake was in there. The snake would hide behind. He had this one piece of furniture in the room. The snake would hide the piece of furniture as the John Foon would come in the room. And to begin with, he used it as a, as a test for, okay, can I have goodwill for the snake? And so for three or four days, he just, you know, thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of goodwill. And, you know, he'd come into the room, the snake would hide. Okay, goodwill to the snake. And then finally, at the end of the third day, he said, okay, I've learned to overcome my fear of the snake. I think this is enough. <laughs> and so he sat and meditated and said, basically said in his mind to the snake, he says, not that I don't like you. It's simply that we're different levels of species and it's very easy to misunderstand one another. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and there's plenty of room out there in the forest for you to be a happy snake. Well, why don't you go out in the forest? And he left the, left the door open and the snake left. And so I thought that was a really interesting and he said it was from his goodwill for the snake that that's how he wished it. In other words, he's not saying I'm going to sit there and love you and pet you. Um, sometimes goodwill means we have to be apart. So it's not really so much loving kindness; it's you wish well for the other, for the other side. And as I said this morning, there's there's that um, ish, that image in the, in fact, the sutta that we're going to be looking at in a minute, um, where they talk about the mother. Willing to sacrifice her life for her child, the Buddha is not saying you have to be willing to sacrifice your life, love for, your your life for everybody, or cherish people that much. You are willing to sacrifice your life to maintain your goodwill, as in the case of the bandits, sawing your limbs off. You still have to have goodwill, even though it means you are going to die. But you want to maintain that goodwill. Now this brings goodwill under the under the purview of what, what does discernment tell us about goodwill? It tells you what it means to wish others well, i.e. may they act on the causes for true happiness. May they understand them, be willing and able to act on those causes. It also teaches you what it means to create a mind state in yourself. The, the Buddha gives us analysis of what he calls the three kinds of fabrication. There's bodily fabrication, which is the breath. Verbal fabrication, which is direct to thought and evaluation, i.e. the way you talk to yourself about an issue and then there's mental fabrication, which is the perceptions you hold in mind and the feeling tones that you're creating inside you. And you realize, if you have ill will for somebody, you you have to take that apart in terms of these three fabrications. Change the way you breathe to ask yourself, how am I talking about this issue that is aggravating the ill will? Can I talk about it in a way that promotes goodwill? And then that relates to the perceptions you're holding in mind, which would be mental fabrication. All too often when we're passing judgment on someone, we're way up here in the judge's seat and they're way down there. We feel that my passing judgment on that person has no impact on me. I'm free to judge them in whatever terms I want. But the Buddha's reminding you, if you go around you know, having, a, having ill will for other beings and seeing nothing but their weaknesses and their bad points, it's going to be very hard for you to actually treat others well. So you actually need to look for the good in other people as a motivation, as, as a way of nourishing your own goodwill. The image he gives is you know, it's someone who's walking through the desert and they see, and they're t- hot, trembling, with thirst, tired. They see a cow's footprint with a little bit of water in the cow's footprint. They realize if they tried to scoop up the water it would make it muddy, so what they have to do, they have to get out and slurp it up. Now, you wouldn't want anybody taking a picture of you while you're doing that. And you feel that it might be beneath your dignity, but you've got to do it because it's for your own survival. In the same way when someone's been mistreating you and say, I can't feel goodwill for this person or I can't see the good of this person. That's beneath my dignity. But then you realize, okay, I, I need that person's goodness in order to make sure that I'm more skillful around that person. At least keep that goodness in mind. And so you're willing to I, in, in what you might tell yourself, lower yourself to look for the person's good points so that you're not going to mistreat the person. So it's another image the Buddha has you hold in mind. That would be a perception, that would be a mental fabrication that you would use to take apart the mind's conversation that's telling you, well, this person did this, and this person did that, and it's really outrageous, and how can I stand this? And Wait a minute. Human beings are like this. John Fung had a student one time was? She was a nurse, and she was the victim of some gossip among the other nurses. And she was really getting sick and tired of the gossip. And she was went to meditate with him one time, and she had this vision of her many lifetimes as being like a hall of mirrors, going back, 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 and you should probably realizing I've probably been the victim of gossip many times in the past. It just became overwhelming and oppressive. And so she, after she came out of meditation, she mentioned to him, "I don't." It's just overwhelming me just how much gossip I've, prom- I'm, I've been subject to. He said, well, who asked you to be born in the human realm? <laughs> this is the human realm. You were the one who wanted to be born as a human being. This is what human beings do. It shocked her. But then she said, it was one of those messages that she remembered for the rest of her life. And, hey, you're here on this realm. What do you expect out of this realm? You can't let yourself get upset by the fact that human beings are behaving like human beings. you, know? you got to say, I've got to raise my, my mind about that. Now notice that when the Buddha talks about goodwill, he doesn't say it's part of your innate nature to have goodwill for others. He says it has to be, the potential is there, but we can also be just as we have the potential also to have ill will or to have very limited goodwill. So he says, you have, it has to be a determination. You have to make up your mind that, yes, this is something I want to do. I need to develop this. And it is also a form of mindfulness. You have to keep reminding yourself, I've got to have goodwill for this person. You turn on the news, you see somebody doing something on the news that you don't like, have got to have goodwill for this person. And that kind of gets into the other next lessons that the Buddha, that the teachings on karma teach you about goodwill. One of the questions is, why do you need it? And the first reason is to guarantee the skillfulness of your actions. If there are people that you cannot have goodwill for, it's going to be very easy to mistreat them. So when you're engaging with somebody, you've got to have goodwill for them, no matter how difficult they've been. Because what you're going to come away from the situation, regardless of how it comes out, is the, the karma that you create by your actions. And so, in order to guarantee for yourself, I'm going to be more likely to treat this person in a skillful way, or act skillfully in this situation. I've got to have goodwill for everybody. That's the first reason. Remember that the question of having goodwill for them—this is not whether they deserve your goodwill or not. It's not a question of deserving at all. It's a question of okay, you need it. You need to develop this goodwill. And it's interesting that Buddha talks about goodwill as a restraint. It's basically, it puts restraint on your unskillful actions. Because we tend to think of goodwill as big an open, you know, unfenced state of mind. But it's there to put restraint on your on your impulses that would pull you in the other direction. So it is a form of restraint. The other reason why you need it is the Buddha says it can actually mitigate the, the effects of your past bad karma by developing unlimited goodwill in the present moment. The image he gives is of a crystal of salt. He says your, your past bad actions are like a crystal of salt. Your mind is like a body of water. Now if your mind is like a little cup of water, you put the crystal of salt in the water it becomes too salty to, to drink. That's a limited mind state if you develop an unlimited mind state it's like a large river of water and assuming it's not polluted you put the crystal of salt in there and you can still drink the water because there's just so much more water in the same way your past bad actions come to you if your mind is unlimited it's going to have much less impact than if your mind is still you know, holding grudges and holding resentments and plotting revenge Now, it goes along with other developing other abilities as well like the ability not to be overcome by pain or overcome by pleasure, developing your virtue and your discernment. But having unlimited goodwill is an important aspect of not only creating good karma now, but also protecting you from your past bad actions. Just a minute, let me finish. We talked about earlier this morning that you know, your experience of the present moment is not totally determined by your past actions. It's what you're doing now also determines how those past potentials are actually going to be actualized. Because sometimes you hear that, you've probably heard this sometimes, people saying that, you know, if you want to see someone's future, you look at their present actions, you want to see their past, you look at their present condition, which is wrong. Because you cannot see everybody's past actions based on just what they are now. Because in other words, it's not like we have a single karma account and what you're seeing is the running balance. The Buddha's image is more like we have a whole field of seeds. Some of the seeds are sprouting now, other seeds are waiting to sprout. And some of the seeds will sprout faster because you water them right now. And other seeds will sprout more slowly because you're not watering them right now. There's a lot more give and take in in the Buddha's explanation of causality than a simple deterministic, you know, your past is what shapes your present, or your present is what shapes your future. Your present is being shaped not only by past potentials, but also how you actualize those potentials here and now. And then finally, one of the passages we have is look at this in a minute. The karmic consequences of 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 karma of unlimited goodwill. You sleep easily, you wake easily wake up easily, you have no evil dreams. The devas love you, human beings love you. You're not going to be killed by fire, weapons, poison. And if you, you die with a clear conscience, and then if you have, don't have any higher attainments, you become a Brahma. All but your good things. And then finally, what, what the other lesson you learn from teaching of applying the teaching of karma to goodwill is the question, how do you express goodwill in action? And it's not necessarily through being tender with people. my own experience in the forest tradition is that I had never been so criticized in my life in such sharp terms (laughs) as I was by my teacher and it was because I trusted him that I was willing to put up with it and see Well, I was actually benefiting from the criticism sometimes I didn't even know how how harsh the criticism was until I tried it on somebody else (laughs) I'll give you a brief story there was a woman who came regularly to practice at the med- meditation at the monastery. She was the wife of one of the higher officials in the local roads bureau. And she had her own private roads bureau Land Rover, chauffeur driven, that she would come out. And she liked to park it right next to my hut. Now, this was after her husband had completed a road into the monastery complete with a parking lot. But she still liked to park it next to my hut. It was killing the grass. I didn't like this. So one day I noticed, I was looking under the, the meditation hall, and I found a big railroad tie. And there was a spot where she had to go through a very narrow passage to get into the spot next to my hut. So I said, this is it. So I put the railroad tie in the way. And the next day they drove up. She got her chauffeur to get out, move the railroad tie and park up. <laughs> so I went back and I put the railroad tie back in place. And she, that evening, as she was leaving the monastery to go back home, you know, she got the chauffeur to move the railroad tie again, so they got out. So I put it back in place, But she's got the message. The next day, she comes driving up, stops there. She's getting the chauffeur to get out move the railroad tie again. And I have to be there. And I happened to use a phrase that a John Fuang had used with me many times, which was, don't you understand human language? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize what an insult that was in Thailand. You know, it's like saying, do well, you need to use dog language? when you, But um, she was livid. And she went up and she you know, complained with John Fuang. She said, I understand Deva language in my meditation. He's accusing me of not understanding human language. And <laughs> you know, it's like when your child says something you know, a child should not be saying and you realize you know where that child got that. Um, <laughs> there was another woman who was watching all this and she said, all John Fuang could do was laugh. <laughs> because he knew where I got that phrase. <laughs> and so she went up and she tried to meditate, and she couldn't get into concentration, and she finally realized it was because she was angry at me. So she came down and apologized, and that was the end of the story. But um, At any rate, being having goodwill for other people does not necessarily mean you always treat them with tenderness. Sometimes you have to treat them with harshness, because it's a necessary way that's going to work. The Buddha himself said, there are times when he would say things that are unpleasant because it was the right time and place. And the skill, of course, is learning the right time and place. You know, when you treat people with gentleness, when you have to treat them with a little bit more harshness so that they actually protect themselves. So how do you really help other people? Is you get them to be virtuous. You try to induce them to follow the precepts. You try to induce them to overcome you know, passion, aversion, and delusion you're respecting the fact that they are agents, and not just recipients of your actions, but they are agents and they're going to be you know, experiencing the results of their actions. So if you can get someone who's not observing the precepts to observe the precepts, that's how you show your goodwill. If there's someone who's easily overcome by passion, aversion, and delusion, if you can get them to pull back some, that's how you show goodwill. So those are some of the lessons that karma teaches you about how what goodwill is and how to develop and why to develop it. Are there any questions? Yes.
5: Just on that last point, um, in terms of uh, trying to help people or, Sharing, you know, the, the benefits of the Dharma and the practice with them, but I find like a lot of people are so resistant to mm-hmm. any kind of new ideas or a different way of thinking in terms of one based in generosity mm-hmm. versus based in selfishness, mm-hmm. and um, and that there's only so much that you can engage with these people before just even engaging with them on a superficial level will cause you harm mm-hmm. um, in terms of what they take from you. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the, the kind of balance there in terms of the degree to which you engage with these people and... well again if you find that it's,
1: it's, your efforts to help them are not working I've got to pull back for a bit this is where you have to develop equanimity realizing there's some people you can reach and other people can't reach because they have to choose to listen they have to choose to follow through you can't make other people's decisions for them but you try. And there's that great piece recently that Steve showed me last night, it was on um, The Daily Show, where they're talking about you know, how, how you know, if, if you were being ethnically cleansed by Buddhists, they're probably the worst people to be ethnically cleansed by. They're saying, well, you're, 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 we're not defri- depriving you of anything that really was yours to begin with. You know? <laughs> Which would be really, you know, infuriating. Um, you don't want to come with a the sort of Buddhist, Buddhist holier-than-thou attitude, but you have to look at okay, where are these people? What would be the kind of lesson that they actually might listen to? If they're being selfish, you say, well, hey, you know, maybe you could advance your own what you think is your own interest by being showing a little bit more kindness to other people. And I know, in the case of my father, if I was going to give my father some Buddhist advice, I would never use the B word. You know. Just kind of okay. This is basically common sense. So again, you don't come with this. You know, this is what Buddhism had to say. But you know, it, you know, just basic common sense. And if you can present it that way, that makes it easier for some people to take. But there are a lot of people out there you can't you
5: can't reach. And I mean, just to follow up on that. I mean, if you kind of give them the opportunity, and then they decline it in and in you know. Is it okay to just kind of move on from that relationship and right. leave it behind? That's that's up to you. Really depends on how, how
1: you read the situation.
2: Yes. My question was going to be about uh, uh, goodwill for people who you know are harming you mm-hmm. right now. And... And the image of the people who are sawing your limbs and holding goodwill. Um, somehow I have a, a feeling that non ill will rather uh, is probably a little better in. What What is better? I, I was thinking that probably non ill will would mm-hmm. be a better image of what a person, what at least I could hold in my mind if. I were in such a situation, mm-hmm. rather than a sense of positive goodwill, like okay, mm-hmm. may they be happy, I'll rather well, it's not have, at may least they may be happy they not, as
1: they continue to saw my limbs.
2: Yeah, I, I'd rather ha- have it as may they stop doing this mm-hmm. so that they, it doesn't lead to their long term harm. Harm.
1: That's goodwill. But
2: but more than that, may, may they just stop doing this so it stops harming me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm whether or not I care so much about their long-term uh, you know, happiness. Okay. Well, is, so that, is that?
1: It's useful to take some of the sting away from the fact that I'm being hurt right now. Uh-huh. And just say, okay, I can accept the fact that this person is harming me right now. But if I focus on the fact that I'm being harmed by that person right now and want it to stop, then it's very hard to get my mind above that. Hmm. Okay. And I, I had, I had a, I'm trying to think of something went through my mind just now and then as I looked at you I forgot um. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for that face <laughs> <laughs> what was it? I'll come back to that yeah. oh the Buddha's example when he was sick you know, you know, Devadatta rolls the the rock down on him and and the stone sliver pierces his foot and so he's lying down. And Mara comes up to taunt him. So what are you sleepyhead, you know, just moping around because you've been, well, and the Buddha says, no, I'm lying down out of sympathy for all beings. And one, okay, the fact that I have to look after myself so I can continue to teach, but two, instead of focusing on the fact that I've been hurt by this other person, I'm going to have goodwill for everybody. That takes you away from you know the fact that I am a suffering being right now. Why am I sick? Why is this happening to me? Say, may all beings be happy. That pulls you out of that that particular inner conversation.
6: So I've spent years <throat> spending at least two hours on the freeways every day, mm-hmm. getting back and forth, mm-hmm. which is a lot of time to experience ill will and <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and so what works has of late more and more works for me is, is as soon as I start like leaning on the horn or something like that it hurts me mm-hmm. I mean I start I start to realize jeez you know and then I end up carrying it and and then um, any <clears throat> what I finally the way I finally think about it is uh to let the ill will stop here mm-hmm. and not keep circulating it right mm-hmm. and um, and that kind of works for me, like if somebody cuts me off, and oh you know they shouldn't have done that and everything that mm-hmm. if I just kind of sponge it up um, you know not be you know protect myself and all, but mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't keep recirculating and uh, and I don't come away kind of polluted by it,
1: yeah, well again. There's somebody up there thinking, who is that idiot leaning on his horn? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you say, well, I don't want to give them more fuel for passing this on. And, and this with any kind of bad karma. You think, well, let we it stop right there. Yeah. And don't think of it as you have to sponge it up. It stopped right there in front of you. Okay. It's your choice as to whether you're going to pick it up or not. And John Lee has a great image of I mean, It's like other people say really nasty things to you it's like they spit out something and you go down and you pick it up and eat it <laughs> now who are you going to blame you know, yeah. for the fact that you get sick it's okay there are idiots on the highway, this is part of the human condition and don't say well, geez, this is really outrageous, how could they do that well they're doing it everyday you
6: know? that makes sense the idea that I'm hurting myself actually right. mm-hmm. realizing that they're not hurting me mm-hmm. oh.
1: questions I thought we have more discussion on this topic (laughs) let's look at the passages then the basis of goodwill is this passage number nine it's everybody trembles at the rod, every, or all are fearful of death. And it's drawing the parallel to yourself, neither kill nor get others to kill. In other words, you're basically taking your own fear of death, all, your own fear of punishment, and realizing everybody else has that same fear. And then the, then the follow-up is, okay, don't harm anybody. Not only that, but don't get other people to harm. Because that way you're doing a double level, double layer of harm. It's interesting that in, the, in the, the monk's rules there is no rule against suicide but there is a rule against committing suicide in a way that harms somebody else. And an even stronger rule against, against getting somebody to kill you. Because you're dub- doing double harm to the person who kills you. Okay. Next two passages or, you know, you'd hear about metaphrases. Well, these are the Buddha's metaphrases. Think, happy at rest, may all beings be happy at heart. Whatever beings there may be, weak or strong, without exception, long, large, middling, short, subtle, blatant, seen and unseen, near and far, born and seeking birth. Seeking birth, that's a um, simple way to see, that's a character of, it's a class of beings that haven't found the place where they're going to settle down yet. This kind of an intermediate stage where they're still looking around. And I've got some great stories about these if you're interested. Um, may all beings be happy at heart. Let, and then the Buddha goes on. Not only may they be happy, but not only that, may they not do unskillful things, which is what the following passage is. Um, Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere or through anger or resistance wish for another to suffer. So not only are you saying I want you to be happy, but also I don't want you to create the causes for your own suffering by despising other people or mistreating other people. So again, you're treating everybody as agents, not simply as recipients of your actions. So that means you're not going to try to get somebody else. You You don't kill, but you get somebody else to kill for you. You don't steal, but you get somebody else to steal for you. That kind of thing. And then, as a mother would risk risk her child to protect her only child, even though so, one should cultivate the heart limitlessly with regard to all beings. That's the passage where the is basically saying you protect your goodwill in the same way that a mother would protect her child. The Sutta goes on to say, one should resolve on this mindfulness. This is where I was talking about how it's, you know, you have to be mindful to do this, because this is not an innate quality of the mind. Or in other words, it's not more innate than ill will. You have potentials for both in the mind, so you have to cultivate this, make up your mind, you're going to be determined, I'm going to treat this person or wish this person well. And you turn them that, and then you've got to keep that in mind. Passage 11, this is another metta passage. May these beings, free from animosity, free from oppression, and free from trouble, look after themselves with ease. In other words, you're not saying... I hope that I will be there for them all the time. I hope they will be there for themselves. Nobody wants to be dependent on someone else for their happiness. Everyone wants to have their own ability to maintain their own happiness. So you're wishing that for them. Yes. Here's the mic.
5: Um, can we talk a little bit about goodwill to ourselves mm-hmm. and what form that should take? And let's say a pure form of that would be: May I be, may I act skillfully. <laughs> what do we do when we make a mistake and we don't act skillfully?
1: Okay, what's the kindest thing to do to re- with a mistake? On the one hand, is to admit the mistake, and secondly, is to resolve you're not going to repeat it. And at that point, the Buddha says again: Then you also extend goodwill to yourself and other beings. Goodwill to yourself. So you're not constantly coming down in yourself for having made the mistake. Remind yourself that it's a human, it's part of the human condition that we're going to make mistakes. And then goodwill for others because that helps confirm your, your motivation for not wanting to harm others.
2: follow-up to that question. Suppose you know you've made a mistake Mm -hmm. and you want to remember that you made that mistake so you don't repeat it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you remember you've made that mistake and you tell yourself, I made this mistake, isn't that a... a, a, How do you remember it and still not get down on yourself or come down upon yourself? Because I do have things to remind myself I did this this was wrong this was not what I should have done and I used that as a way to kind of maybe kill my sensual desires or whatever it is and uh, but but there's no way uh, I'm able to uh, see this as not coming down on myself it is it is a, I feel like it's it's okay to do that or maybe I'm wrong to an
1: extent I mean, you have to make sure, that's, as the Buddha said, there are times when you have to be harsh with other people out of goodwill. So there are times when you have to be harsh with yourself out of goodwill. Mm. Especially if you see yourself coming back and making the mistake over and over and over again. And you have to sort of up the,
3: up the strength of Especially
1: if see of tendency inside. But also... it. When you don't make the mistake, and and the next day you feel better, oh, I'm really glad I didn't do that again. Remember that. And that becomes part of your motivation. You go, okay, remember the last time I was tempted to do this, but I felt better when I didn't do it in the, in the long run? Don't I care for myself? So make sure that underlying the harshness is the, the consciousness, okay, I'm doing this for my own good and that I really will be happier when I don't do this. Question back there?
0: Okay, so I have a question that relates to um, goodwill and discernment. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately in kind of thinking that the link between the two, like I feel that if you, that I feel like goodwill supports discernment. Mm -hmm.
1: And discernment supports goodwill.
0: And discernment supports goodwill.
1: They help each other along.
0: Yeah. Can you Talk a little more about how goodwill supports discernment. Like the example that comes to my mind is: um, if you see someone else suffering, mm-hmm. and you have goodwill for that person, you will be more able to discern. Discern. Sorry, my accent. To discern what they may need that you could do to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk a little more of how goodwill helps good discernment?
1: Goodwill helps Well, you know, the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths. He's concerned about putting end to suffering. And that's, he says, this is the best use of your discernment. And this, this is where the teachings in the suttas really emphasize that, okay, the whole underlying motivation or the best use of your discernment is to put an end to suffering. And that, what is that motivated by? It's motivated by goodwill. May beings be happy. Compassion comes out of goodwill. Yeah. Because basically you've got compassion, goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy. And goodwill is the umbrella. And then compassion is when you see somebody suffering, goodwill basically wishes for their suffering to stop. If you see somebody's happy, goodwill is happy for their happiness, and wishes is it to continue yeah. So goodwill is what covers the whole.
0: I guess when I see the Eightfold Path, like I would be thinking or um, I interpreted it when I was doing the program as i'm doing the path for myself mm-hmm. um, but the question what I was asking was you know
1: goodwill for others
0: goodwill supports discernment towards others mm-hmm. you know so I can see that goodwill supports discernment towards myself right mm-hmm. um, if I'm like if I hate myself I won't be able to see things to improve or mm-hmm. something but the the question that interests me uh, is how Goodwill would help. Goodwill towards someone else will help you have more discernment towards them. That makes sense.
1: Well, again, dealing with other people, it's the same sort of thing. Our motivation for practicing is not only to lessen our own suffering, but if you get more competent in handling your suffering, you're going to be less of a burden on others. You see this most vividly if you you know know someone who's never really practiced and they're, they're on their deathbed and they're just miserable and they reach the point where you really can't get through to them. And you know, the suffering that you know, the people there watching this person suffering, because they can't handle their own suffering. I mean, if you actually are able to control, you know, deal with the problem of your own suffering so that you're not going to be bur- burden on other people, that's actually a gift to them.
0: Yes. But I, I was trying to ask about the different. is um, I feel it's not just my not being a burden on others, but it's actually my uh, bringing good things into the world by being more discerning of the needs of others because I have goodwill for them. If I had ill will for someone, I wouldn't have as much discernment of right. their needs. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk a little more about that? Well,
1: this is the basic principle of karma. Is that if you if you actually want for your own happiness, part of your being happiness is not, is learning how not to harm other people. As you get more and more sensitive. Well, what, in what ways am I actually harming other people through my actions? And I'll learn how to stop doing that because it's, otherwise it's going to rebound back on me. So it gives you your motivation for being kind to others. That's what the discernment teaches your goodwill, And why you should treat other people as you would like to be treated yourself. Or avoid doing things that you would not like to have done to you. And also, if you're suffering less, you're gonna see their needs more, more clearly, more objectively. Because if you're going through life trying to feed off of other people, you're seeing other people as food. And you're not going to see them, well, how are they suffering in the, in the process of my feeding off of them? It's like the hunters who say, you know, it's the rabbit gave itself to me. Mm-hmm. It's because they want to eat it. If they didn't want to eat the rabbit, then they would realize, oh my gosh, I'm just shooting this poor rabbit. So if you're able to take care of your own inner needs, then you see somebody else. It's not so much, what can, it, what, how can I feed off of this person? The question is, what can I offer this person now? So that even your help, I mean, there are cases when your help to somebody else is actually your, your way of feeding off of that person. Gotta watch out for that. Question over here?
2: Just for my own understanding, could like I emphasize these Viharas and goodwill as a way as a refuge, mm-hmm. using those skills as a refuge towards like unskillful acts and like, my mm-hmm. own well-being. Mm-hmm. Is that like a way of summarizing? Well, or again, it's things?
1: protection for you. The yeah. Buddha talks about you having goodwill for others as a protection for yourself, and you know, as you're doing the practice, that's also protecting others. The image he gives is acrobats. One acrobat is standing on the other one. Each one has to look after his own or her own balance, so as not to throw the other person off of balance. That's the way in which looking after yourself, you're going to be looking after others. He says the, other pr- the opposite principle also works. There are times when going out of your way for others, being more compassionate to them, having more endurance as they abuse you, is developing your own, own inner strengths. So the two go together you know, the whole issue about you know, are you going to be helping others you're going to be helping yourself in the practice and for the Theravada there's no clear line as you're helping yourself you're helping others you're helping others you're helping yourself the next topic okay oh, Jeff. where's the here's another, here Michael
5: So then, how do you discern when um, you helping others is not actually helping them even though you think that it is, or it ap- appears that it may be uh, this
1: is where you have to really look carefully
5: So what questions would you ask yourself even to broach that like how would because we've become so embedded in oh, I'm helping this person, I must be helping myself, it's a good thing, what would be the, an, an indicator that ah, there might be something underneath that very subtle? What would be some flags yeah. to say, mm, maybe not? Um,
1: to know when you're overextending yourself, you have to ask yourself, how's my meditation going? Is my meditation getting worse as I'm helping more and more and more and more people? That's the first thing you would look at. And then if you know, they begin to show signs that they don't like your help, maybe that's a sign that it's not really helping them. Because <laughs> sometimes they're showing signs all over the place and you're, you know, you're ignoring them. You don't have to. Are you getting resentful? Yeah, or well, again, are you getting resentful for the help you have to give? And then you have to ask yourself, okay, this is my parent. Okay, I have to learn how to put up with resentment and so teach myself not to resent. Uh, Again, if the student doesn't like the help, there comes a point where their resistance is so great you realize you're not helping them. I mean you have to say things that they're not going to like, but then you have to see, okay, what is this person's reaction? Which is one of the reasons why. As a teacher I have to say some outrageous things to my students, just to see are they willing to put up with criticism? It's good to see how they react to criticism. It's like when you're dating. You know, you're dating someone, You what, what is this person like when he or she is angry? So you say something to make them angry. <laughs> you never did that? <laughs> I mean, obviously, look at me, I'm a monk. I mean, after I've, I've done that. but. <laughs> But I always wanted to know, you know, what what is this woman going to be like if she, you know, if I can make her angry, really make her angry without meaning to? What's her anger like? In some cases I didn't have to do anything. There was one particular, one woman I was dating, and I saw her tear into her father one time. That scared me. I said, whoa, if she can do that to her father, what she can do to me. That was the beginning of the end. But as a student, as a teacher, you have to be able to test your students. Okay, if I criticize a student, you know, how are they going to take it? But as for resentment, I mean, there are times when you're helping your, your, your parents and they're really, really hard and you have to say, wait a minute, when I was a kid, they cleaned up my shit. They, were, they put up with all the, all the crying in the middle of the night. And at least, you know, I, I owe them a debt. So that's when you have to talk yourself into it. Don't resent this. You've got to remember you have a debt of gratitude. There are other people you don't have quite have that debt of gratitude. So, well, maybe I'm, you know, doing much this much for this person. They don't seem to appreciate it. They don't seem to you know, be benefiting from it. There must be other places I can give my help that would be more, more fruitful.
4: Yes, in the back.
5: Uh Just in terms of uh, building goodwill as a refuge, is there a particular kind of strategy in terms of uh, you know say you start with goodwill for you know a teacher that you've learned from and then a family member that's cared for you or an animal or a pet or something, and then you work your way up to kind of the people who have harmed you um i mean starting from you know a point of stillness and then working, or do you just go straight to the person who's harmed you and then just do your best to kind of Wish goodwill for them. Well, sometimes, I mean, if you have the leisure
1: to be doing this, you know, not in the heat of the moment, it is easier, it's better to start out with someone that you find it easy for. But then you also have to remind yourself, well, what does it mean to have goodwill for somebody? This doesn't mean, I would say, you know, may, may you continue, you know, sending out drones and be happy. You may say, well, maybe, maybe someday you may see it. it's a bad thing to be sending out drones. 'Cause there are other times when you know someone you know in the thick of the battle or the thick of traffic or whatever, someone you know does something really outrageous, you guys go, Okay, goodwill for this person, regardless of how easier but remind yourself it doesn't mean I have to like what they're doing, I don't even have to like the person. Just remind yourself, I don't want to act in a way that's going to harm that person. So I've got to think about their happiness. goodwill is fueling yourself so you don't eat the sugar of revenge so as as a beginning exercise you want to work your way up gradually but then you want to be able to go right to whoever you're dealing with regardless of how much you like them or dislike them
5: is it okay um, to kind of think in the same way of the foulness of the body or the aversion aspect to think how they're suffering and to use that as a way to to develop compassion towards them? That's one way of doing it. In fact, the the Buddha in that passage where he talks
1: about being able to think about the good points of other people as a way of fueling your goodwill for these other people. He says, sometimes you will run into people you can't see anything good about them at all. He says, in that case, you have to have compassion. This person is creating a lot of bad karma for him or herself. And so it's not up to me to pile on Sort of to make things even worse. Again, that—that's again. This is a kind of restraint. This holds you back from wanting to do harm to that person. So, you know, as with the contemplation of the body, you start out with bodies that are easy to contemplate and say, "Oh, yeah, that really is ugly." And then you work up to ones that are—you know—you find more and more attractive. But then, when it actually comes, you're confronted with someone who's really attractive, but you know, if you got involved with that person, it would really be bad. That's when you've got to, you know, right then and there, be able to think about that. To pull up that perception. So when you're dealing with someone who's really difficult, you have to be able to pull up their perception, okay, I've got to have goodwill for this person. And then remind yourself, well, how did I create the ill will? Through the way I was breathing, the way I'm talking to myself, I've got to change the way I breathe, change the way I talk to myself about this situation. Should we break there for a few minutes? Come back in about 15 minutes.